Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Greg Tall, Director of Learning and Development for JB Training Solutions. Greg is a high-energy facilitator and trainer with over 15 years of experience in talent acquisition and development. He served as Director of Talent Development at Teach for America, a Fortune 100 Best Companies to Work For employer, and was Director of Talent Acquisition and Professional Development at a private university in Chicago, where he helped them innovate in areas of employer branding, talent acquisition, employee onboarding and engagement, and learning and development. Greg has a long history of building and leading diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. He is widely known for his nonstop energy and his ability to help participants navigate difficult conversations with confidence and candor. You will definitely feel Greg's energy uh, in this conversation. He is a fantastic person to talk to and is incredibly knowledgeable in the DEI space. In this, he outlines the issues and what got us to the position we're in today. He helps define some terms so that we're all thinking and talking the same language. And he has some practical advice, whether you're an individual or a company, on where you can start and what you can do to be improving the situation for yourself and for those in your community. Uh, I really think there is a lot here for anyone, whether you're in a leadership position or not, whether you work in a company or are unemployed. I, I think we can all be better in how we are talking about and dealing with issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So without further ado, here is Greg Tall. And we are live with my friend, Greg Tall. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, O'Brien. How are you today, man? Doing well, doing well. Just another day in quarantine. I know. I'm interested in this. This is a relevant topic. We're going to get into diversity, equity, inclusion, and a lot of the training programs that you've been doing, what you're hearing in the market, what your own experiences have been. But before we do any of that, just be good to kind of level set the lens through which you look at this and, and understand some of the work that you're doing. So could you pitch JB Training Solutions to us? I can pitch JB Training Solutions to you. So JB Training Solutions is a really wonderful learning and development company that is based in Chicago, but that does work really all over the United States or actually all over the globe now, because I mean, we're doing tons of stuff virtually now via Zoom. So we can really reach the audience absolutely any place. Uh, but our mission is focused on making work better. So the workshops we do encompass everything from training managers to helping employees at every level get better with the communication skills to improving presentation skills to customer service skills to understanding how generations interact with each other in the workplace. And of course, in the, uh, in the past few weeks or months now, we have seen a dramatic surge in requests for our diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops. 
which we've had in, in some way, shape or form for about three years now. But again, as I mentioned, in the last few weeks in particular, we've had lots more clients really asking about those. So uh, we want lots and lots of work in that area specifically. When you have a client reach out with one of those requests, what are they looking for? Like, what are, what are they asking for? How are they framing their question? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So it's kind of evolved, I'd say, a lot in the last last few months. So I, I think before very, people were very specifically coming saying, we want to do a workshop about unconscious bias, right? So they kind of knew exactly what they wanted. They knew who they wanted to train. They knew what kind of behavioral changes they were looking for. And they were very specific about what kind of outcomes they were seeking. Now, I, I think it's a lot more people want to do something so I'm having lots of conversations with clients who are kind of approaching things for lack of a, a better description from a real place of contrition. And they're, they're seeing what's happening in the nation. They've been paying very close attention. And a lot of what I'm hearing is, you know, we, we recognize now that we, we should have been doing more uh, around diversity, equity and inclusion going, you know, back into the past. Uh, but now we're just extremely conscious of the immense amount of work that needs to be done and that we need to do as an organization. And we're looking to start that. So now I'm, I'm hearing a lot more conversations where it's starting with, we need to do something. We're not entirely sure what it is, but we know that we need to start a conversation. We know we need to do this work. We know we need to be offering something to our employees and really thinking about how this national conversation it impacts and really, you know, ties into our business. So that has really changed a lot in the last, again, few weeks to months, I'd say. And what do those conversations look like? Like, how are you helping your clients think through that? You know, that's a great question because everyone's coming at it from such a different place. So we have everything from clients who are saying, okay, we have never, ever, ever <laughs> done anything at all uh, for diversity before, right? So we have everything from that client to we have clients who have already actually done a significant amount of work and they've done workshops before. They might even have some, some in-house workshops they developed. They have employee resource groups. They've had, you know, town hall meetings around what's happening. And, you know, they are looking for more just kind of outside, if you will, subject matter experts to help guide a more targeted conversation. And we have everything in between. So a big part of the work that I personally do is really figuring out where they are in that initial conversation through dialogue and figuring out where they are as an organization and ultimately, you know, what they are looking to accomplish at this point in time. And that ranges from simply we want to raise awareness of, you know, kind of the issues at play right now for all of our employees. We want to give people a shared language and vocabulary to talk about these issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We want people to feel more confident and more competent, competence talking about these issues to um, they're really looking for a very specific behavioral change. Right. So we have our hiring managers and we want them to be aware of what bias is because we want them to be mindful of how it might be impacting how we are sourcing, how we're screening, how we're interviewing, how we're ultimately hiring people, um, how we're promoting people. So we have everything from simply those who want to raise awareness right now to those who are looking for very specific behavior change. And a lot of that initial conversation is figuring out where they are as an organization and where we can best, you know, kind of, kind of uh, customize the content and the experience to really speak to what those needs are. So that was great. And I think we could spend the rest of this time sort of dissecting what you just said, <laughs> uh, which we probably will do. Yeah. 
let's start at the beginning. You mm-hmm. said some people come in and they go, we've honestly never done this before. And I imagine there might even be one or two people in there that go, I don't know what the problem is. I just know that it feels like there is a problem and enough people have told me there's a problem that yeah. I should probably be paying attention to it. Yeah. What is the problem? Like in your mind, suddenly this topic has exploded out there. What is the underlying problem that we're now as a society trying to solve for in your eyes? Oh, wow. How long is this show? (laughs) (laughs) It goes as long as you need. (laughs) Okay. So hour one, we're going to talk. No. Yeah. Um, This is a six parter. Right. Six part or three hours per part. Stick around. I mean, the ears are closed right now. What else are people doing? You had to listen to the podcast. This is it. So the short answer is there's a lot that's kind of happening right now, but I'm, I'm going to try to neatly package it up and, and make it make sense in some kind of an understandable answer. So essentially what has happened is for a very long time, whether we want to acknowledge or not, acknowledge it or not, which I'm going to say largely, we do not. Whether we want to talk about it, which I want to say largely, we do not. Our nation has a very deep, troubling, hurtful, um, oppressive history of racism, right? So it's not brand new. It, it's been around and it really, you know, goes back as far as it, our nation itself, the, the kind of the very foundations of our nation. So we think about all the things that we kind of think about in, you know, kind of modern or past American history, um, racism predates most of that stuff, right? So it's this long-standing thing. So it's always kind of been there, but at various times, we've kind of found ways to put it aside, right? And not have the inconvenient conversation around the very real lasting legacy and impact of racism uh, until every once in a while we have, or I shouldn't even say every once in a while, but we have these, these, these incidents that pop up. They're kind of a stark reminder of, you know, its presence, right? So what we see happening now is kind of this this perfect storm of events where uh, we've seen, you know, kind of the most recent, I really call out specifically is simply the most recent incidents of, you know, uh, kind of showings of a a structurally racist system, right? But then we have on top of that, we have a, a pandemic going in the background, which has its own impacts. But one of the kind of the peripheral things from the pandemic is um, people are paying a lot more attention to things and a lot more closely um, than they typically would. So uh, I think in, in in past times, then you have an incident like what happened with George Floyd and it kind of is the news cycle and then the news cycle moves on and we're on to our regular lives. We're back on our commutes and everything and like keeps on going. Well, life is disrupted in an unprecedented way for all of us right now. So this story, or these, actually these stories that have kind of unfolded in the past few months that typically would have been, you know, kind of spikes, right, in our, in our, our knowledge have now really stuck around with us and have really led to a deeper conversation, deeper awareness, and really, I think, national protests, right? A national conversation started. But I think it's kind of this perfect storm of events that's brewing. So it's been here for a long time. So none of these, the issues that we are talking about and trying to address now are new. They've literally been here for decades and centuries, but now we're back at another, I'm going to say another point in time, we're having a, a kind of a critical mass conversation about it, which I would say perhaps, you know, by my own opinion, the last time was around the civil rights movement, right? It's kind of the last time really we had this widespread conversation where it seems like lots and really everyone was really talking about this. So, we're back at one of those places 
once again now. But again, the issues are not new. They've been around for forever, but now um, people are are suddenly talking about them again, and it's kind of front and center. And uh, there's so much other stuff kind of swirl, swirling around this right now, around you know everything from from politics. As well. I mean, there's just lots happening. So um, that's why it feels, I think, very, very real, and perhaps for for many new. But I'd say it's not new. It's kind of been around. We're just simply being reawakened to the reality again. Thank you. I, I think that was a great summary of that. How do you define racism? This is something I've been thinking about more and yeah. more. How do you define racism? You know, that's a great question because I think part of why this conversation is so challenging in many cases is because that definition is not always clear to people. So I want to break it down a couple ways, actually, right? So I want to break it down as kind of on an, on an individual basis. And then I want to talk about the structural racism, which I think now the national conversation is really a lot more about structural racism. But what tends to happen is people, we don't differentiate between the two. And we look at things solely through the lens of individual racism. It's very easy and reassuring to say, well, hey, I'm not individually a racist, which might very well be true. So therefore, there's not a problem. I'm not a racist. My partner's not a racist. My parents are not racist. My neighbor's not racist. So I know there's racists out there, but they're very few and far in between, and they don't really have any influence on anything, right? So when I think about individual racism, I think about it as simply an action or a belief in which an individual acts out or believes, you know, acts out in hatred or in, in some form of supremacy, versus another group of people, right? So it's, we're talking about now, we're talking about, you know, kind of the racist sayings, uh, burning a cross in someone's yard, that, you know, those things kind of individually, even if we must talk talking about a group, right? It's kind of individual, one person to another. It tends to be very, affect a small number of people and it's horrible, but it tends to be kind of isolated in nature, right? So that's kind of individual racism. That's the kind of people say that that's not me. I don't burn crosses in anyone's yard. Uh, I don't use the N word and, I think that probably is going to, I imagine it's going to be true for most people. But then we have this, this thing called structural institutional racism. And, and that's the one where people don't know as much about, but that's the one that's a lot more prevalent and a lot more impactful. And this is when you have um, policies and you have things codified within institutions, both public and private, that will limit access or rights for an entire group of people. And this is where you have something where very large groups uh, of a population are directly impacted and, again, directly cut off from rights or privileges or access to resources. And in that case, there's not always necessarily a clear actor, per se, right? There's not one person you point to and say, well, hey, there's a racist who is doing that. I mean, it's a system, right? And it's so deeply embedded that it kind of comes ubiquitous where it's kind of all. And I, I like to think about this as. If anyone's ever seen the, the movie The Matrix, right, uh, which I think is being rebooted now, which I have very mixed feelings about that. <laughs> but, I don't think it's uh, being rebooted. I think they're doing a fourth. Oh, they're doing a fourth? Okay. Yeah, I think it's an extension. I still had mixed feelings about it. I mean, listen. I do too. have to let it go at some point. But um, if you remember the premise of The Matrix, the, the very first one, kind of the premise is there was this war between machines and people, and the machines won, and as a result, they, you know, basically enslaved the minds of all human beings, except for a few who live in the real world, which the real world is a very dark, 
desolate place that is run by the machines and kind of the humans, you know, have to hide out in order to remain safe um, and out of danger. But then they create this construct, which is the matrix. And that is what all the enslaved humans are plugged into. And that is this, this essentially this, this ubiquitous existence is a reality is wrapped around us. And it's not really real, but it's, it's this projection of what life is. And that reality, we, you know, we live in homes, we get up and we go to work and we you know, get married, we have children and we eat and we do all these things. But it's, it's all a construct. It's not really real, right? It's kind of giving our brain something to occupy us, to, to hide from us the, the dark reality of enslavement. So I kind of, I liken the world we live in to that, the matrix, in that is the real world is a place where we have a long history of racism and our nation still deals with the, the lasting legacy of that. This is so deeply embedded into our institutions that we don't necessarily even see it. Um, but we have the matrix and the matrix is the construct that is wrapped around us that kind of gives us some shielding or gives us peace from, from facing that, that dark, harsh reality every day. So that begins when we start school very young and we are told about our history as a nation. And it's kind of conveniently wrapped in this very virtuous, peaceful, noble, attempted <laughs> freedom, which is part of the narrative, but it also leaves out the very real narrative of, you know, genocide and enslavement and institutionalized race. It completely omits a lot of that, right? And it, it kind of starts there and it continues on throughout our entire education. And then it carry, carries over into college and, you know, in, into the workplace. And it's just this world we live in that kind of completely has, has chosen to, to not acknowledge and talk about racism or find some way to justify, you know, these stark disparities we see. And as a matrix that we live in. And at some point in life, we will run into a Morpheus, right? That's Lawrence Fishburne's character. And that Morpheus will say, okay, so you have a choice. You can either keep living in this construct of a world where you're not really seeing reality, or you can take this other pill and you'll see things as they are. So, I, I mean, I think that pill is just empathy. Mm hmm like it's conversations with enough people who are living a different reality than you're living that you can't ignore it any longer. You know, and I, I like, I love, I love your analogy of the matrix, but it's not like, you know, to your point about how we teach history yeah. and that we teach the virtuous side of history. It's not that there weren't those things going on. It's that there were other darker things going on too. And to get a complete picture of it, you have to understand both of those things and sort of reason with them in your head. And it's kind of the same going on in the matrix. It's like, Hey, my life is good. And there's nothing wrong about that. But there's also this other existence going on where life is not as good for other people. And that's not good. And that's not okay. And so how do we, how do we help that problem? And I like your definition of racism versus systemic racism too, because that's something that I've been trying to get through as I've had conversations with people who are like, well, you know, to your point earlier, I'm not racist. My business partner's not racist. You know, our business, therefore our business, you know, isn't racist. There's nothing institutional here that's trying to do anything wrong for anybody. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't some things that you can be doing better. And I feel like that when you're defining what individual racism is, or when you think about just the term racism, it seems to me like that has some intent to it. Whereas when you talk about structural or institutional racism, it may or may not have intent. 
I think there are definitely some examples where it has intent, redlining and things like that. But there are also plenty of examples, probably more examples where it, it doesn't have intent. It's just creating a bad experience for a large portion of the population. Yeah, I think it's a really great way to look at it. So when I think about individual versus structural, I think that the intentionality has a, a, a lot to do with it. And by the same token, I also don't want to let us off the hook with the intentionality behind structural racism because, you know, part of the structural racism was it was intentional, right? And I think that's the part of history we don't want to acknowledge. We kind of say, well, it's kind of got here. But like you say, there's things like redlining, restrictive covenants and Jim Crow where it was intentionally the policy and the practice of the state to exclude or restrict access for for black citizens or even the issue of citizenship itself was structurally something that was you know a very contentious issue for a, a long time right so when we think about kind of how we we got to where we are right now and why it's so challenging to, to rewind some of that stuff is because where we are right now is exactly the result of not just you know a few actions or like a, some random stuff but literally result of decades in centuries of intentional action to exclude, to oppress, and were codified into law. So now, it guess what? It's going to take a lot to kind of unwind that, right? And I think that's the part that really makes people bristle is that, unfortunately, we can't just do like a couple of workshops and say, okay, great, we're done now. <laughs> workshop. No, it's taken like lots and lots of intentional effort and legislation and, and work by, you know, private institutions and, um, and funding, right? To, to, to get us to where we are right now. So the only way out of it is by an effort that is just as powerful, just as intentional, and honestly just as sustained as, you know, what it, what it took to get us here. And I think that's the part that really um, makes people say, well, I don't know, that sounds like a, a lot of work. And, and my response to those individuals is, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a heck of a lot of work, but it's taking us a lot. Yeah. And it's work do. worth doing. It's work worth doing, definitely. Yeah, and, and I did not, in my comment before, want to want to make it sound like I was letting institutional racism off the hook for not having some bad intent. I think, I think you see people push back now because they've set up a business in the last fifteen years, you know, and they say, "Oh, well, well, no, I, you know, I want equal opportunity for everybody. I want this fairness. And so there's no institutional racism here, but what they don't realize maybe is that the business that they're building is that when those laws that determined how their business is regulated were put in place a hundred years ago, the country was a very different place and the legislators were doing things from a very different perspective. And they, they were putting some underlying groundwork in place that, that did some harm. And that, that was yeah. intended to do harm to those communities in, in some cases, or where they just were, you know, if you give them, even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, they were incredibly ignorant to the negative impact that it would have. So, you know, you got to go all the way back and fix some of those underlying issues as well, even though you're trying to do, you know, you're trying to do your best, but you're building onto a system that's had hundreds of years of foundation below it. And so you got to go back and, and fix the foundation. That's exactly right. Yeah, we, we have to look at the, the foundation itself, because if we're building on that foundation that inherently is is inequitable, then what that means is that anything we put on top of that, even with our best of intentions, right, ends up in, in some way, shape or form being inequitable. So it means we have to really in, interrogate our actions, interrogate ourselves and be mindful around, you know, what we're doing. And I think simply approach things as a spirit of both humility and curiosity 
And when I do these workshops, you know, part of what I am always very just, I keep top of mind is this conversation is one that people have not had. Because again, it was intentionally not included as part of our our narrative in history, right? So to, to, to live, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of your life and not really hear about any of this at all, right? And then suddenly like, by the way, <laughs> the very foundations of everything that you know and you hold to be true was, you know, it, it, it's all, you know, rooted in racism is kind of like this splash of ice cold water hitting you. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that up until this year, I knew nothing about the Tulsa massacres and Black Wall Street. Yeah, exactly. It's literally right? zero. I knew it's nothing not about it. About, yeah. Right. So we have an entire community that's literally firebombed and and wiped out completely. And and that's problematic for on a number of levels, right? Because then we start thinking about just representation and how blacks are portrayed in history. Well, you go, well, they never done anything significant. Well, no, actually, they have many times. But so it, it overlooks that point, but it also overlooks this this larger thing that we see repeated even to current day, which is if there ever is any black progression or resistance, it's been met with uh, very strong uh, white violence, right? And again, it's something we don't like to say. We bristle at saying that, but it's it's repeated itself over and over in history. And in Tulsa is an example of that. And so we have to omit that from the narrative because it doesn't fit into this narrative of this virtuous liberty and justice for all. Because you see, they say, wait a minute, if that happened, then we're not really who we say we are. We're not really living the values that we put forth as being so true. So we have to like wash over that and say, well, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> so, uh, but then again, you, you have this point in life where you get to, you know, a certain age and you start hearing about these things and it's disruptive because it goes against what we've, myself included, right? Myself included. We, it goes against what we've fundamentally come to understand and believe around our history and how we got here. And so what I always tell people is it's just like work, right? When it comes to work, you have experience, you have education. So experience is the stuff that you've done, you've actually gone through personally, and education is the stuff that you've been taught and you've been shown, right, academically. So I have, on one hand, I have my experience as a black person, and I know what that experience is like for me, having navigated through life as one single black male. But then for me, I also have to add on the education, which is for me also, there's a point in time where I did not have knowledge of the deep history of institutional racism because it wasn't talked about. So for me, I was, my journey kind of started during my college years when I took an educational policy studies course. And that's kind of the first time I heard about this stuff. I was like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? Right. And so everyone has that. That was my Morpheus moment, right? That, that blue pill or red pill. So that was my Morpheus moment where I took the other pill and my eyes were kind of open. And even for me, again, as a black person, it was like a splash of cold water. Like, wait a minute, we never, we never talked about this throughout my entire education before now. And I had a black history course in, you know, in high school, right? So, and the further you go along, the harder I think it is to to reconcile what you come to understand about our history versus, you know, what the the larger context of it is. The the hard part about it too, what what you just said made me think that. It's not just what we've been taught. It's how we define ourselves. It's the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and our heritage and our values. And suddenly now there are large portions of the population calling those values into question. And that's tough for a lot of people to deal with because suddenly it feels like people are saying, 
oh no, you're not a good person. You thought you were a good person, but you're not a good person. You're, you're a racist or you, you know, there's all this throw whatever negative term on there you want. And that's not exactly what's being said, right? What's being said is that these values that you believe in are great and are noble and we should be that, but let's acknowledge that they haven't always been that. And let's admit that there's been a blind spot. It's like, this is probably going to be a a terrible example, but you know, you, anytime you do a 360 or you get feedback on a, on a glaring blind spot, like that feedback hurts. It does. Right. And it's, (laughs) and it's hard. And the first thing you want to do is say, well, I mean, you don't really understand or no, that was just a circumstance or no, that's just one person who feels that way. And it's really their fault. And you, you know, it's so hard to just sit with feedback that shows you that you have some kind of deficiency. It's so hard to sit there. And right now we're asking our entire society to sit with that feedback and say, look, we're not all as great as we thought we were. And I think one of the nice things right now is there has been a lot of conversation around, let's just sit with that for a second. Let's just, let's just process that. Let's have a conversation around that. And then let's figure out what we do with that. And I think that's where a lot of your work comes in. Yeah, no, I, you're are exactly right with that, that it's, it's hard to, to sit with that. But the interesting thing about it also is that I think it's only, I shouldn't say recent, I guess now the sixties probably would take us back. I was at 60 years. Yeah. So it's, I think in more recent times become less socially acceptable to be racist. Right. And, and what I always like point out to people is there's a, a time period, you know, free civil rights movement where it was just fine. People were very proudly racist, right? You go, you saw, you know, colors, you know, slide over here, you know, and people would, you know, very proudly use the N word would, would proudly go out and, you know, commit an act of violence against a person of color and then take a picture as a community with the, you know, the person hanging there. Right. So something shifted though. Right. And then it became socially unacceptable to publicly display racism. So I think what happened there was, I don't think racism died out. And I think it's kind of the narrative people want to say is, oh, we had the civil rights movement in 1964, uh, the Civil Rights Act, rather, and now everything is better. And I think what simply happened was the game went from being over to being covert. And I said, okay, well, now we can't make as much noise uh, about it. So um, do I largely think that everyone's racist? Absolutely not. Um, do I recognize that there are still, you know, I, I think racist people out there and perhaps that might be less prone to publicly say it or or do it uh, definitely yeah yeah certainly <laughs> well we're seeing we're seeing plenty of examples we're seeing uh, and now it's of kind intent of, so yeah, yeah yeah the public the public the public comfort with it being publicly acknowledged now has i think resurged in these past few years so uh, i don't think it ever disappeared but it, it changed right and i think that's a big o'brien when you said you know kind of people dealing with the that dissonance other being called out, I think that's a lot of it. Like no one wants to acknowledge racism, right? And very few. Like if I, if you were to ask a hundred people, are you racist? I'm guessing you get 100 no's. <laughs> like, yeah. And if I were to go to the room and say, all the racists, raise your hands right now. I'm guessing there would not be a lot of hands go up, right? Now that could be for a couple of reasons. That could be for one, there's truly no racist in the room or 
Or that could be that they're all in the next room over, right? So there's racism, Greg, but it's not us. It's not this in this room. It's the, that ne- it's room 100B, right? Room 100A, everyone's good here. Or it could be, which I think is the most realistic option, it could be that simply we are not willing to acknowledge or we're simply not aware of how some of our actions and behaviors, even if we're not a racist, right, might perpetuate inequity or show up as racist. We're not aware or willing to acknowledge those things. I think that's probably more indicative of, of where we are right now. And if we, we can kind of pause and, and get comfortable there, then I think we have a chance to do something meaningful. Yeah. The, the biggest, I guess the hardest conversations that I have had with folks around this topic is when it, at least it feels to me like they're not willing to sit with it and say, is there anything that I'm doing or any belief that I have that could create a different experience for somebody else? Or from a system standpoint, is there something about this that is creating a different experience for somebody? And it's the people who just, that that sitting with that feedback is too uncomfortable at the moment. And that that seems to be where you have the hardest time having meaningful conversation about this. And I think that's, that's really true for all of us, right? So Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the you know, creator of the 1619 Project, who is, is a wonderful author, just lots of great work. But I remember hearing a, a podcast interview with her, interview with her, and she's um, she lives out in New York. And, you know, she kind of, you know, just kind of called out, you know, for her family, you know, her husband, her child, you know, kind of their level of privilege, right? That, you know, I, I live in a place where I have a neighborhood school and we're fortunate enough and privileged enough that if I really wanted to, I could, you know, get my kid into, you know, the um, a selective school or some, some other school basically different from our neighborhood school. And she kind of said they had this moment of reckoning where they, they thought about, well, if we do that, then are we n- not also perpetuating the problem? Because the idea there is then are we are we kind of saying that our child deserves a better education than the children who would you know who are at this neighborhood school that you know so it's kind of this moment of reckoning where we recognize that even as people of color um we have to be thinking about these things and thinking about that we all have a part to play in this work right but I, that was very profound to me because you know we I, I never heard anyone describe it that way we when we talk about our kids education we always we always kind of say that i want my child to have the best education which sounds great and virtuous, right? And it sounds very sanitized and sounds like what parents wouldn't. But then the other side of that is we have to recognize that what we're also saying there is that we have recognition that not every child is getting the same education. So what I'm really saying by proxy is I want to do what it takes to get my child a better education than the next child. Now that thought is a little bit less comforting and that's the kind of stuff that gets people bristling and say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> that's not me. I just want to, you know, they have the Spanish language program or whatever. Well, and even how do you define what a better education is? Yeah. Right. Is it a test score thing, which I'm not a big fan of? Or is it that you want them to go to a school that looks more like you? Or, you know, what does that mean? Um, is it from a wealthier neighborhood, which that that maybe doesn't have racial that's not coming from a racially motivated place, but it definitely has racial implications in a lot of communities. So yeah, how you define that and what that means definitely shapes a lot of the underlying layers of that conversation. How, let's talk about language for a second. 
you had said earlier that part of what you do is create a shared language around this stuff. And we talked about racism, systemic racism, uh, institutionalized racism. What, what are some of the other terms that we need to come to grips with as we're defining the landscape here? That's a wonderful question. And I, I, so I think there's lots out there. I personally see a lot of value and have had a lot of success starting the conversation by talking about bias because that is something that we all have. I think it's something that people kind of intuitively get what it is. And I think that in terms of starting a a deeper conversation is probably the, the least threatening way to start. So right, I think if we come out of the gate and saying that, you know, everyone is part of a, you know, oppressive system, well, people are going to understandably, you know, <laughs> perhaps have some, some, you know, some resistance to that notion. But I think if we start the pro, we start the, the conversation with the idea that, okay, bias is simply this thing is based on these stereotypes, based on our past experiences, and it impacts how we view and react to other people. And when we make decisions, it can be, you know, guided by our bias. So it simply is, you know, kind of how we respond to people, how we think through things, right? So I think we start there, but then we kind of start, as we get into that conversation, we start getting to other things that become more specific around this conversation. We start getting to things like microaggressions, right? So this is, again, we we acknowledge bias. We say, well, the bias, the bias is unintentional. So I have these deeply held, you know, beliefs and stereotypes that are down there. I don't even know that they're there but they might force me or or make me speak out and act out in a certain way. And I don't intend to be harmful, but it might still have that impact. Is that then, is that then the definition of a microaggression? So you have a bias and the way that that manifests in the world would be a microaggression. I think it's one of the ways of microaggression, a microaggression intentional or unintentional. So you could very well be a, a very willful microaggressor. I don't know if microaggression is actually a word, but we'll say it is for now. Sure. <laughs> um, well, I think that's a term that confuses a lot of people too, or gets a lot of like scoffed reactions, you know, where it's like, oh, well, that was a microaggression. It's like, ugh, come on. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so I think helping to define that or understand how those things happen can help have real conversations around them. If we can all agree, like, no, 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 it is a real thing. And, you know, it's maybe not all the way here on the severity scale, but it's still a real thing. And let's let's have a conversation about it. Yeah. The, the way I like to have people think about that, I think you is perfect. You said scale, right? So what I like to have people think about it is don't think about another person's experience as a binary. So we think about it as a binary and we think about it as either good, bad, it's okay, or it's not. Then it really negates how we treat the people. So we say either this is racist or it's not. This is good treatment or it's not. Then it's easy to put a lot of stuff on one side or the other and say a lot of things that are problematic from impact perspective, you know, we, we kind of discount, right? So in the same way, I think we think about microaggression. You have to think about how we impact other people. It's not just this binary where this behavior, this action is, is either good or bad. There's this continuum here, right? So on one hand, you know, could you, you know, say something that's, you know, clearly meant to be uh, offensive and, and hurtful to someone? Yes, you can. That would be a kind of on the far end of the spectrum. But then on the other hand, you might have kind of further down the line, right? Um, you might say something that has kind of racist implication 
And you don't necessarily need it to be racist, but it's still hurtful, still impactful, right? So we talk about microaggression. We're simply saying that, like you mentioned, it's not necessarily this, this big, hard-hitting thing, but you know, many people have kind of likened it to a paper cut. It's, it's small and quick, but it hurts like hell, right? Um, and, and that's kind of how I think about it. So, Yeah, it gives you that reaction that like, ooh. You know, that, yeah. like it just makes you flinch a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to move on and be fine. But like, ooh, there was that reaction. And it hurts, right? Yeah, yeah. that is interesting. And, and the thing with the microaggressions is because the, here's the issue with the microaggressions. So when something big happens, it tends to be like something big happens and then it's quiet for a long time, right? Microaggressions are more problematic because it might be small, but guess what? They also tend to be normalized. So the, the microaggression that one person might, you know, engage in it, it and due to someone else, that's just kind of their one experience as the person who did it. Or the person receiving it, and that might be the, the 10th thing that happened today or the 15th thing that happened today, right? Again, kind of my intention might not be bad, but the, the impact on the person who is constantly, you know, at the, the, the receiving end of that. Do you have some examples of what those look like or maybe even you know, if you have any personal examples of like what, the, what oh, that looks like. Examples. Well, I, I think that's helpful, right? Cause yeah, yeah. like, because I think to your point, it's easy to hear maybe one example and go like, come on, shake that off. Like everybody jokes, everybody, whatever. But when you, when you stack up a bunch of examples, especially if it all happens in one day, you know, it like drives people crazy. Like I think, you know, I, I do sales for a living, which I've talked on here before. And so I, I do some cold calling or, or have, that's kind of how I started out in my career. And you wind up talking to somebody and, you know, they're like rude and nasty or really short to you. And it's not because they're rude and nasty. It's really short or really short. It's because you're literally the 15th phone call that they've gotten that day of somebody asking them for something. Yep. And it, and it just compiles and compiles and compiles and compiles. And then, you know, they can't stand it anymore. And I, that's again, probably a terrible analogy that, plays down the impact that these, you know, racial microaggressions have, but it's sort of that similar compounding effect where it's like, yeah, if I was the only one calling on these people, they'd take my phone call and it'd be great. And, you know, we'd have a wonderful conversation, but it's, it's not, it's that they've been bombarded by these things. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and I, I think that's a, that's a great analogy because I think it shows exactly what we're trying to get at here, which is the kind of the intent side. So your intent is as a caller is simply I want to offer what I believe to be a, a good and valuable service to you. And this is one call to you, right? So that's the intention side. But like you said, the other side, you know, you're now the 15th vendor who was calling before nine o'clock. I'm trying to get by. You're ready for my feeding and everything. The phone keeps ringing. And every time someone's asking me for just 15 minutes for a you know, one-on-one meeting or call, whatever. So, yeah. And it's like, you know, if somebody made a joke about, you know, some, trait of my whiteness yeah it'd be funny okay that's fine but if i had to walk around and people made 15 jokes a day about it it'd probably get a little heavy yeah it would well and the other the other thing that does not get talked about a lot again it hasn't been part of the the popular popular narrative is that the the other reason why my corrections are are so challenging is because of the the power dynamic and representation right so it's, it's one thing to, you know, experience a slight or, you know, a comment or what have you. But it's another thing when you are also in a, a system where historically your identity has not been represented. It's not been acknowledged. You, it's not been seen in, in many ways. 
And the cases when it has, it's been, you know, portrayed, depicted in a less than favorable light. Um, it's been depicted by people who are not part of your community. And then when you go into these settings, um, you don't necessarily have the meaningful power to kind of counter some of the things that you are a- experiencing, right? So, yeah. So, yeah, if you would just share some examples, and I know we're we're not at time, but I want to be cautious of time here. And I want to get to some some solutions for some of this stuff, too, so that people can take some things away and not just feel terrible about the problem, but can hopefully feel a little bit empowered <laughs> right. about doing something about it. So what, let's talk first about how it shows up in the world. So what are some of those examples that either you've experienced or that you've heard about or, or seen others experience? I have had everything happen from um, I've arrived on site to to do a, a, a job. And the very first thing that is said to me as I'm entering the space, literally the very first thing is, um, yeah, I've been working on my tan all summer and you walk in with just the perfect tan already. Now, obviously I'm not a tan, I'm black. Don't adjust your camera, right? Um, so you have everything from that to, as you know, if I, I always am playing, like when I would do live workshops, you know, pre-pandemic and quarantine time, I always play music, you know, before and after just kind of to warm up the room and keep it a nice environment. And, you know, uh, I had an incident where um, in my playlist, I had like, uh, I think it was, who was playing? I don't know, let me Duran Duran, some 80s, some 80s band, right? And, and the last person in the room is, as she's exiting, kind of exiting, and kind of says, Oh, I'm surprised that you hear you listening to that. I would think you listen to Lizzo, which of course is, I'm a black female artist. So you kind of have those things. And then, you know, you have these other things that kind of are, are humorous. So I remember one time I, I was staying at a hotel, and a couple of friends and I were staying at the same hotel. And we were out front, me and uh, another black another black male friend, um, Mike, and we were standing about, I don't know, about 20 feet apart. So he's standing there and we're both in suits. We're going to like some conference or something. I don't know what it was. We were going to conference. We're standing there in suits. We're standing out in front of the hotel. And um, a woman comes with the mic. She's got her bags in tow. And, you know, she's kind of handing him the bags like, you know, here, are you with the hotel? And he's like, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not at the hotel. So um, so then Mike looks at me like 20, as, as if to say, Greg, she is coming your way. Right. And so she, she takes her bag. She passes all the, the white people standing in between us. And sure enough, she arrives at me and she's like, she's got to give me the bags. And she's like, you know, are you with the hotel? Can you take these up? <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, well, well without kinda- stopping at anyone in between. Without stopping uh, anyone between, right? And this has happened. I mean, this is kind of the experience in, you know, I've been in, in, in stores and everything. And so here's what I'm getting. So people say, well, well, Greg, maybe it's just that, you know, you look like you you work there. Maybe it's a compliment, right? I say there's two things. There's two things why. One, contextually, this happens in circumstances where it would not be a reasonable assumption to assume that I, I work there in, in that capacity. So for example, I've been in a Target store before where I'm dressed in a full suit and someone will come up to me and ask, do I work there? I'm like, Target employees always wear a red top and I clearly do not work at Target. So that's one thing. But the second thing that happens is the capacity in which I'm assumed to be in is always the same because I'm there to serve you. So I've been asked if I am the bellboy or the valet. I've been asked that a million times, but I've never once been asked, are you the manager? Are you the owner? So the the capacity kind of remains the same no matter where I am. And, you know, what it's always, uh, it's always the assumption is I'm in a capacity to, to service you. Now, 
here's that comes into play and where the, the deep history gets in. So for some individuals who have lived a certain length of time, that context is based on valid past experience. Because they lived at a time where if they did show up at a hotel or someplace and I was standing there as a black male, then most likely the reality would be that I am there in some capacity to serve them. So it's not that they've made this stuff up. It, it, it's coming from some past experience. Well, again, for some populations, for people who are old enough that, you know, they experience that. So there, there's something to that. But then this happens again, even with individuals who, for whom that would not be their, their life experience, right? So that's the thing. It is, so it, it's comments, it's, it's behaviors, it's, you know, assumptions about, you know, what I want, you know, and I've been in conversations where I've been there and I've, I've arrived at the table and the conversation is going one way. And then when I'm pulled aside, I'm one-on-one, you know, it suddenly becomes um, kind of this monologue about, you know, how big a fan they are of Barack Obama. You know, it's just like all these things happen. Like I know this is not the conversation you're having with other people who don't. Yeah, push. it's even like trying to relate, but just doing it in the worst way. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it just so, and I think again, some of it is very well intentioned many times, but it, it's still, yeah, yeah, and it goes to bias, right? Yeah, that there are these underlying biases built into many people's thought patterns that create that type of stuff and wind up having a negative impact on a big portion of our population. Yeah, especially when done over time. I mean, I I've been confused. For somebody, you know, I've been asked, hey, do you work here? But it's probably been two or three times, you know, it, it not nearly to the level that you're talking about. And so I think that's another one of the misconceptions is it's like somebody hears a story like that and they go, I mean, that happened to me, too. Yeah. OK, once, maybe twice, three times. Did it happen? Does it happen a dozen times a year? You know, it's that like that that compounding effect that I it seems like from where I'm sitting, it seems like it's that compounding that has really made this a big problem. I'll tell you one more story is kind of funny. I won't say the person's name because she'd kill me if <laughs> I ever told the story. But anyway, but it's, it's a friend, right? But it's a good friend. And um but we had a situation. We were we were driving someplace and I was I was in her car. And so I was in the passenger seat. She was driving. And so we, we pulled into a parking lot. It's one of those parking lots where you, you drive up and you kind of self-park and everything. They have an attendant there, right? In one of those parking lots in Chicago. So she's trying to get her car in the spaces. You know, you know how it is in Chicago. It's like the, spot, the spots someplace are just super tight, right? So she's trying to get her vehicle in and she cannot. So she's kind of, she's, you know, reverse and drive, reverse and drive. And so now the attendant has seen this and he's taking note. He's kind of left his attendant station. He's come out now. And, you know, it's a, it's a black male. So he's coming over and, you know, he's like, is there a problem here? And she's like, well, I can't really get my vehicle in this spot. He kind of looks at it. And he's like, oh, you can totally get in there. It's just fine. Right. Um, and she's like, no, I, I really can't. And he's like, OK, step out of the car. Right. And so he's essentially saying, I'm going to I'll just park your car in there for you. Right. So um, she kind of pauses for a second and then she takes off her seatbelt to get out. And I start taking my seatbelt off to get out too. And she stops me. <laughs> like, no, you stay in the car. You stay in the car as if, you know, either I can prevent this babe or stealing, or if he steals the car, at least you have a witness, right? But it was that, that kind of moment. Like, okay, so, so one of two things is happening. So either one, I'm assuming that by virtue of you both being black, that perhaps you will prevent 
you know, this gentleman from stealing the, the vehicle or something like that, or I'm willing to sacrifice you <laughs> if he does still. So at least you'll still be in there as he is driving off with my stolen vehicle now. And maybe you can call the police or what have you. I don't know. So, um, but it's that, it's that very small thing, right? It was at that moment. It happened not in a, in a heartbeat, right? Um, where she felt a threat and that this, this, this black man was saying, oh, okay, I'm going to, you know, get in. And again, he was clear. He had the, the vest on and everything. So there was no reason to, to be suspicious of it. But there was something there that gave her He probably her does that pause. dozens of times a day to help people park their cars and move them around. Yeah. yeah. All the time. Anytime there's a, a, a person who's not from Chicago and can't, you know, negotiate those spaces, he probably does it all the time. That's probably why he offered, right? He knows the deal. He knows that I'm here all day. People come in with their cars and they assume they, you know, they can't get the Toyota Camry into the parking spot. And I go in, I whip it in, and then they're on their way, right? Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things. So let's move forward then to what companies can do about this stuff. So how do you start to identify where these biases are in your system? How do you start to help your people? How do you start to break this stuff down? So the first thing I, I think is so important when it comes to bias work individually as well as institutionally is to acknowledge the reality of where you are. And it's an easy narrative to kind of keep coming back to, well, we could be doing more, we should be doing more, and that's great and fantastic. But I've personally been hearing that now for decades, like we can, that's always going to be true. Like 10 years from now, we'll still be able to do better. And 20 years from now, we can still do better. And 30 years from now, we can still do better. So I think we need to to move beyond that and move into what we actually are going to do. And that first comes by acknowledging where we are. And I I think the the, great place to start is to think about, you know, what does the community, the communities that our business is based in, and the communities that our, that our business serves, what do those communities look like? And how much is that reflected in who works here? But not only who works here, but also who's in power here. And that's the big thing, right? It's, it's one thing to diversify your organization, but it's another thing to also diversify the power structure of your organization. Who makes decisions? Who decides what gets done? Who decides what's the priority? Who decides where budget dollars go? Um, that's another area. So it's first to acknowledge where you are and where those opportunities for, for really, you know, for work exist. And, you know, here in Chicago, what I, I tell people all the time, I just mentioned this on a call earlier today, is that according to the census in Chicago, um, one in three people here um, is black and nearly, if not more than two thirds are people of color. So, okay, that's the city of Chicago. If you are based in the city of Chicago, how much does your employee population mirror what the city of Chicago looks like. Now, you don't have to be exactly number for number on board, but if you're way off, that's your first sign that something we need to look at here. And then we kind of start looking at, okay, now what are we we willing to do? And I think that the big thing to do here is to be specific in having very set, firm, and, and straightforward goals and making those goals public. So I, I do a lot of work with advertising agencies. And one of the things that came out after the killing of George Floyd was there's a group of, of black ad executives that started this, what's called action called 600 and rising. And with that, they put out this kind of this, this list of 12 or 13 actionable things to the ad industry saying, Hey, if you're really serious about racial equity, here's what you can actually do 
inside your organizations to move the needle in a meaningful way. So kind of in response to that, some of the ad agencies immediately just kind of publicly shared, okay, when it comes to the demographic makeup of our workforce, here's where we are right now. Here's how many people of color we have. Here's how many, and they kind of publicly shared it. So I think one is to acknowledge where you are and make this stuff public, right? And then have very quantifiable goals, just like you do for every other area of business. So if, if diversity and inclusion and equity is really important to your business, then don't just, you know, Say it, don't just etch it on a wall in your, your headquarters. Don't just put a BLM sign on your website. Um, actually make some, some measurable, quantifiable goals, just like you do for every other you know, part of your business. And then you know, hold yourselves accountable for, for actually getting there. And when you get there, you know, celebrate and keep going. When you do not get there, figure out what you need to do differently to, to, you know, to do better. You know? But I think those are kind of the areas to, to start with. And to, to, I think, to, to make some of those things more public creates more accountability. So it's easy again to kind of go into the shadows and say, we're going to do work over here. But I think it's another thing to say on, on your website or someplace very public where your stakeholders can see what you're committed to doing. I think that's going to be more powerful uh, to say, here's where we are, here's what we're committing to doing. And then you can kind of have check-ins periodically to see how you're, you're progressing. So I like that from a systemic structural level within a company. But then I imagine there's also a lot of individual work that has to be done to be able to see that work come into reality. So what is what is the individual training look like that you're doing now? I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit different or maybe a lot different everywhere, but what does that work look like in practice? The, the big thing, O'Brien, I tell people is that in every workshop, I, I try to make a point to say, okay, you sat through two hours, three hours, whatever amount of time you've done, exercises and all that great stuff. But here's the, the thing I will guarantee you. If you leave this workshop and you don't do anything, then nothing will happen. Nothing will change for you individually. Nothing will change for your family or your household. Nothing will change on your team. Nothing will change in your business. Nothing will change in the nation. If you leave here and do nothing, then nothing will change. That's how it's going to play out. So what I, I want people to think about is, okay, what is my part? Whatever it is, right? And, and what I tell people is no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. So figure out what your something is. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not, you know, going to go out and march in a protest. That's fine. There's lots of other work that can be done out there, right? So I really encourage people to think about a few things. One, um, how can I, I educate myself, right? So simply, I know individually where my own biases are and how I might be doing things that might again be, even if unintentionally, hurtfully impacting others. I want to then become aware of institutionally how things work because I, I want to be aware of, again, I might be unintentionally doing it supports these, these institutions or these policies. And then I know what I can start to do to become an, an active advocate for starting to equalize the playing field and to start to dismantle those things that are there are most problematic. I need to know where I need to be an advocate. Then I need to know what kind of work I need. So I think it's those two things individually and systemically, you know, kind of, raising your level of awareness. The next thing is uh, really being an ally, right? And I use ally as both a noun and a verb. So an ally means, you know, it's action oriented. So once you're in the process of regularly, 
you know, educating yourself. And that's lifelong work, by the way, it's, it's lifelong work. It's okay. Well, now how do I, how do I take this and, and act on it? And I think that action has to be in both the, at home, right? And it has to be in social circles and it has to be in, in the workplace too. It really has to be this holistic approach to, to equity, right? So that means that if I am seeing microaggressions in our team meeting, that I'm willing to speak up and address those. That means if I'm hearing, you know, statements or, you know, things made in passing in, you know, in my social circles, that I'm willing to challenge them, right? Uh, that means that if I'm hearing biased or racist things being said amongst my family in the household, I recognize that I'm in Uncle Lou's house, that's his house, <laughs> but still, I can question those, right? I can question those and I can be, I can be kind and diplomatic about it, but I can question those. And the reason why is because I'm not so much necessarily I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, change Uncle Lou's mind. What I am thinking about is those children, those, those, those teenagers, those young adults that are there and they're seeing this play out now. And whatever I do or don't do becomes what's normalized and becomes what's acceptable for them to then do in their own social settings, in their own workplace. So if they see and hear this and there's this racist thing that's said and no one responds or reacts, then what that means is, well, there's no need to do it out there either. Because this is the people that we're the safest with, right? So um, I think it's then thinking about how do I show up in those three spaces, in, in, in home life, in social life, and in professional life, so that I'm an ally and an advocate, and I'm kind of, you know, showing up as the voice of, you know, um, of reason and support, but also, again, acting and recognizing how I can use my own privilege to to start to, to equalize things, right? And how I can be an advocate, how, you know, I can use my social capital, that's a big word, uh, social capital, how I can use my social capital to be impactful, to really bring about equity. So I think if we can do those things, that's really a, a, a lot of the the work that if we can just do those things, that'll do a lot. That'll do so much. Yeah. Well, I think I like your point about people need examples that they can go out and then emulate in the community, right? And you need some people who are going to be the starters of, to show courage and stand up, whether it's in their own houses or out in the community somewhere. And the more examples of we of that that we have, the more contagious that will be, and then the more normal it will be to be able to stand up to that stuff. I, I think there's a, there's a miss one misconception too, that I've seen, which is that confronting that needs to create some sort of conflict that, that you need to come at that with some type of either like anger or like that you need to shut that sentiment down. And we all know that that just does not work. No, that is not right. You get your opinion across, but it's, you're not resolving anything. And I had a professor of behavioral science on here, uh, Professor Lauren Nordgren, who talked about deep canvassing, which I found to be really interesting. And it was where you would go purposely go into a community that did not share the belief that you were trying to perpetuate. And instead of just going in there and saying like, hey, you know, I want you to support blah, blah, blah candidate. Here's why, here's all the education for why this is the better position. What you would do is you would go in and say, how do you feel about this issue? And then you would let them explain however they felt about it. And then you would say, have you ever felt a time 
where you were subjugated or where you were belittled or where you were made to feel this way and you get them to feel the feeling of the thing that you're trying to get across to them. And then you bridge that gap and say, well, that's actually how we're trying. That's actually the problem we're trying to solve is we don't, and we don't want anyone to feel that way. And this group over here feels nothing but that way. And that's how they've been made to feel right now. And that's why we're supporting blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if you're open to that, we hope you consider it. And they actually change much more behavior that way with that type of empathy creation than trying to educate anybody. And I think I, I've been thinking about that a lot in the communications that I have with people in my networks and my families, because as weird as this sounds, it's like the people who hold some of those views or who might say that wrong thing. The thing we need to show them too is empathy. Yeah. Because the only way they're going to change is if they feel like we're showing them empathy and then showing them a different connection or a different path. And, you know, I think that's so true because, I mean, I think at the end of the day, and I, I truly do believe that I, I I feel like, you know, wherever people are and kind of how are they showing up to the, you know, the party in life, right? I think that ultimately people want, you know, good things for their families. They want to make sure they're well, well taken care of. And I kind of feel like by and large, people kind of range in this this range from, I want everyone to do very well. So maybe they're down here to say, well, I don't really care about everyone else, but I, I want my family to do well. And that's fine. So I don't mean harm anyone else, but my concern is, is my family. And I think in this, this time where things have become so politicized that, you know, to that, that person's point that it would just kind of take a step back and just kind of take the, a very humanitarian focused approach to things as opposed to getting into red versus blue, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Like, to me, it's like this idea like, okay, the idea of everyone having, if we can start the idea of everyone having access to healthcare, regardless of whether or not you're employed, is that a good idea? Like, right, I think we start there. Like, is there anyone who would raise your hand and say, I really don't want everyone to have access to healthcare? I think we'd all agree that that would be cool. Like, okay, so we start there. We kind of, you know, progress from that point. We, it, I think we sometimes kind of get in the weeds of, you know, is it, you know, is it single payer and all this stuff? And don't get into that. Let's just figure out if we agree that, Hey, if your kid gets sick, wouldn't it be great if you knew reliably that no matter what your personal circumstances were with regard to employment, that you could feel confident that your child would have access to good health care? Yeah, that'd be good. Okay, let's let's start our conversation there, right? Yeah, um, let's work backwards from the, yeah, the ultimate solution. Let's work to what we can agree is, you know, good for everyone. And I, I want to share one other example that just, I think it's just so eloquently said, and it's uh, it's a book I'm not yet on my show. I bought it, but I haven't read it yet. It's by Isabel Wilkerson. It's called Cast, but I, I heard her on a podcast, and the way she described where we are right now, I think she just had a wonderful analogy to kind of describe where we are right now. What we can all be doing it. What she said was, when you buy a home, unless you build that house from the ground up, you you inherit a house, right? So you you inherit the infrastructure, you inherit the pipes, uh, the roof, uh, every, the you inherit all that stuff, right? So whenever you buy a house, you, you kind of go into it and inevitably there's problems, right? Because houses age and maybe the previous owner didn't take as great care of it as they could, whatever. But there's, so you might need to replace a roof or you might need to replace pipes or, you know, the windows, whatever. Uh, but you bought that house, you invested in it. So you don't say to yourself, well, 
we just got this house and it was the previous owners that didn't take care of the termites, didn't take care of the roof or didn't take care of this or that. So screw it. We're not going to take care of you. That's not our fault. We're not going to deal with it. Right. We don't take that approach. We recognize that this is the house we live in. We care about it. This is our investment. So now it doesn't matter what happened before and who did it. We're here now. So it's our accountability. And kind of what Isabel Wilkerson draws the analogy to is that's where we should view ourselves as a nation. Forget about who, whether or not your family owns slaves or not, or whether you were directly involved. Screw all that. That's, that's besides the point. The, the point is, this is now your nation. You know, you are the recipient. You are a resident. You are a citizen here. So it doesn't matter, you know, who did what in the past and who's accountable. Now it's all of our collective response because we all are here. It's all of our responsibility to take care of it. So it's easy to say, well, I didn't do anything with that, so I don't want to fix the problem. Well, no, this is our house. So let's agree that we should all take a part in in, in fixing the problems that we have. So I, I really love that analogy because I think that, that speaks to people that, you know, we are here, we're, we're, we're part of one nation. And so any problem we have is a problem that we all have. So let's, you know, approach it that way. This is our house now. Our house now. Let's make it the best house it can be. Amen. That is a beautiful sentiment to end on. Greg, I really appreciate you making the time today. And I appreciate you sharing your your perspective and your expertise on this. I, I really hope a lot of people listen to this because I just think the more conversations people have, the more conversations people listen to, the more perspective we all get and the more empathy, hopefully, we can all build for each other. And, you know, I'd like to see us living in a pretty nice house here. Amen to that. Well, thank you for having me, O'Brien. It's been real as always. Uh, it was a pleasure to spend some time and catch up with you. We used to do this uh, <laughs> a lot more pre, uh, pre-coronavirus yeah. times. We'll get back to it when this whole thing clears up. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we found a good ending spot because as you and I know, we could go on for a long time. I so. know. No. Well, hey, right. man, you take care. Thank you. Thanks for coming. All right. Thank you. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.